Have you noticed that web development's kind of hard? If you've been doing it for a long time, this is actually easy to forget. It probably sounds simple enough to pick a server-side framework, Pyramid or Django, create a new project. Oh, do I use pcreate? Is that cookie cutter? Is that manage.py? Install some client-side dependencies with npm. Install some server-side dependencies with pip. Create a database. Well, first choose a database server, then create a database. And maybe even set up and install the server uh, the process and maybe even another machine to do this. Connect the app to the database securely. Pick a front-end framework. Is that Bootstrap or Foundation? Integrate the front-end framework into it. Pick a theme. Now, finally, you get to write some code. Ugh, now it's time to deploy. Wait, that doesn't sound that easy. Actually, even to me. What if the web were as easy as old-school VB6? You just open a UI, you drag and drop some widgets, you double-click on the things like buttons for events, but with Python code, of course. With Anvil, you'll see that it really is that quick and easy to get started. Meet Meredith Luth, who's here to tell us about Anvil. This is Talk Python to Me, episode 138, recorded November 6, 2017. Welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on Python, the language, the libraries, the ecosystem, and the personalities. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Twitter where I'm at mkennedy. Keep up with the show and listen to past episodes at talkpython.fm and follow the show on Twitter via at talkpython. This episode is brought to you by Datadog and GoCD from ThoughtWorks. Please check out what they're offering during their segments. It really helps support the show. Meredith, welcome to TalkPython. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, you had some pretty interesting stuff going on at PyCon UK, and uh, yeah, I'm super happy to bring it to a wider audience. Cool, thanks. Yeah, it was it was really great. That's actually been our first time sponsoring that conference, and it was really quite fun being deluged in people. Yeah, a whole bunch of stuff we weren't expecting. We went through a lot of throat sweets in the evening after the conference, but it was really great to see the reaction out there, and I'm really pleased to be talking to you and your listeners, too. Yeah, that's awesome. So I'm, I'm super excited to talk about your project called Anvil, which is kind of trying to democratize the web again in like a really uh, interesting and powerful way and using Python to do it. But before we get to that, let's just hear your story. How did you get into programming in Python? So... Programming, I started, uh, I was very privileged, I started around the age of seven, I was introduced to QBasic. And for me, it was just this piece of magic, because here I was, sitting at this blue screen, and I could type something in, and it, you know, it was nothing the seven-year-old's brain couldn't comprehend. And here was this program, it was drawing pictures on the screen, it was interacting with me, and I could make it do what I wanted, and this was magic made real sitting in front of me. And it was several years before then that I worked out that you could actually make a career doing this amazing thing that I discovered was the best hobby in the world. And actually, like, literally the reason we started Anvil was that, you know, that experience isn't there in much of the web these days. And as far as I'm concerned, that's borderline criminal negligence from our whole profession because that kind of magic that can capture a kid's eye is, you know, it's what we should be delivering. You're right. It absolutely is missing. And so I think you guys are going to bring some of that back. Yeah, that's awesome. So that's how you got into programming. How about Python? So Python itself, actually, I mean, I've like dabbled, dipped into it uh, bits and pieces. But honestly, like we started on Anvil first. Uh, it was very much, you know, we want to bring back this sort of instant access magic. We want to bring back what you had with like Visual Basic 6, these tools in the 1990s. And we were like, okay, but it's got to be modern. It's got to be an easy to use, accessible language. It's got to, you know, it's got to feel that kind of easy workability in your hands. And we like looked at it and Python was so the obvious candidate. And so like I was, you know, I spoke Python as like, you know, fourth language up till then. And then I went, right, okay, this is clearly the right thing and jumped into it. And I've been loving it. Yeah, that's awesome. And so you guys sponsored PyCon UK. It sounds like Anvil is something that you're focused on pretty much day to day. Is that right? Absolutely. Um, so we originally started this a couple of years back now. Uh, it, but it was like an evening and weekends project. It was, you know, we were on our way to a wedding sitting there in the airport departures lounge going, you know, why don't we, why don't we have Visual Basic 6 for the web anymore? And that kind of turned into, you know, some evenings working on it, which eventually turned into like taking one day off a week to work on it. And then last summer, we just honestly, we just stuck it on Reddit 
and we saw the reaction went, oh, okay, this is really a thing now. Okay, we could afford to go full time on it. And so we, we worked our way up to it. But now, yeah, this is, this is our thing. Yeah, that's a really great story. And I think a lot of people feel like the way you get to somewhere where you have like your own business or your own sort of thing that you can go do that's not part of your job is kind of like diving off a high diving board with your eyes closed. Whereas I think in practice, a lot of these things, like you described, start as like, let's test the waters. Let's do some proof of concept. Let's slowly build it up. And then once you see that it's like gaining traction, like, all right, if I could go and do eight or nine hours a day instead of one, think what would happen. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, it's very much sort of wading in from the shoreline rather than jumping up a diving board. <laughs> That's great. All right. So we're definitely going to get into the details of what Anvil is, but maybe just give us a really really high level picture of what you built and then let's talk about your your thought that the web is not as accessible as it should be well what we built was a tool for building full stack web apps with nothing but python so you can design what your page is going to look like in a kind of drag and drop visual editor but everything you place every button every checkbox every piece of text is actually a python object and so even your client side code that's running in the browser is actually just python we compile it to JavaScript, we run it there. Your server-side code is just Python. We even have a built-in database that you can access with pure Python, no SQL, although obviously if you want to you know, go and pull in a MySQL database, you know, we support everything that Python supports. But the idea is really that you should be able to build a fully functional web application and publish it knowing nothing but Python. I think you could build a fully functional web application with hardly knowing any programming. I mean, this could easily be build like a, a really functional web application for your first computer science or programming course in high school or something, right? We have people who've done that, right? You know, we've had schools that have just taught their uh, computing curriculum with Anvil uh, because precisely because of that. Because, you know, for the kids, it comes back to what I was saying at the beginning. You know, you want that instant feedback. You want to have this feeling that I just learned this abstract concept of the if statement, and now here it is in buttons and colors and images in front of me right away. Yeah, so let me see if I can just describe the experience of using this, which, granted, my experience is like I've only built like one little test app and played with it for an hour or something. But still, the idea is you go to your website, you create an account, you launch a cloud browser-based IDE, which is really focused on the sort of UI design layer of UI and data layer of your, your app. You have a design view and a code view. In the design view, you have a bunch of components and widgets that you can drag over, images, links, buttons, repeaters, columns, all sorts of stuff. You can give them names, and then you access them in Python in the code side of your page, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. But it's not just on the code side of a page because you can also then pull up a server module and then you're writing again it's just a python module but now it's running on our servers and you can just make function calls as just a decorator for oh this is something that you should be able to call from your client code and so you can make python calls straight from the python code that runs when say when you click a button in that code view through the server module right and i think one of, i think one of the sort of making this more accessible aspects of it is like i've been doing a lot of javascript lately and javascript is like an intense <laughs> place these days man and uh it didn't used to be even in the early days though like with things like ajax and stuff you still have this sort of callback indirect seesaw type of, of programming so like with what you just described like you write a function on the server and then you write some literally python code that runs in the browser and then you just say call that function on the server by saying something like anvil.server.name a thing you wrote pass the parameters and it's it's even a synchronous call like it blocks and then continues right that's something we we really wanted to do because I don't know. I mean, I'm going to confess some bias here. There's a talk I gave at PyCon US. If you Google it, you can find it. Anvil PyCon uh, Portland talk, where which I entitle like, you know, want to make the world better, put a little bit less JavaScript in it, which is, you know, it's like the inflammatory title. But fundamentally, when you're doing stuff like that in JavaScript, even like the hello world, you have to understand asynchronous callbacks, which means you have to understand like closures and anonymous functions and even promises, well, that's just an abstraction on top of them, and you've got to understand that as well. And like the minimal set of what you what you need to do for, hey, what's your name? Let me stick that in a database and read it back to you, is like a huge amount of computer science. And we really wanted to take that back to what you had 
you know, what you get in a REPL or what you had with QBasic or what you had with Visual Basic or Delphi, where you could just go, well, okay, you click the button. What's the first thing I do? Well, I call this function that puts it in the database. What's the second thing I do? Well, I do something else with the value it's returned. And you can reason about it in a very straightforward manner. And so we've put a lot of effort and a lot of like compiler hacking in the background to make that happen so that the user model is as simple as it can get. Yeah, and I think it's super, super approachable. So, you know, I, I sort of touched on it. You did as well. Like working with JavaScript, working on the web these days, is really tricky. If you're not going to use JavaScript and you want something interesting, you're probably talking Django, Flask, or some something else, Ruby on Rails, ASP.NET. But none of those are super like walk up and just, oh, yeah, I just push the button and go, right? There's actually quite a bit of work to make those things all fit together. Well, and kind of the, the worst of it is you need to do all of the above, right? Because if you're building, if you're building a web application today you're going to need at least five different programming languages. You need to write the HTML. You need to write the CSS to make it look how you want it. You need to write the JavaScript for it to behave in the browser. You need a server-side language like Python on running on the server for the browser to talk to. You need to be talking SQL to your database. And then you need a framework for the JavaScript, a framework for your CSS like Bootstrap, another framework for the JavaScript if you're doing this, you know, React plus Redux thing, a framework for the server-side language like Django, probably a framework for the database like SQL Alchemy. I mean, I count these on my fingers. I've literally just run out. And that is a completely unfair bar to set for, you know, you must be this tall to ride this ride. This ride is the web. It's the greatest application delivery platform that humanity has invented. And we make you learn all this stuff before you can basically do hello world. And it's kind of interesting how that happened as well, because... How do you think we got here? The web as a platform is this kind of Frankensteinian creation. It grew up in the 1990s and there were people who could see the, you know, the potential for this. You know, JavaScript itself was kind of dashed off extra famously constructed by Brendan Eich in two weeks. But as the web sort of grew and it could be seen as a platform, and Microsoft, who are then the dominant incumbent, put a lot of effort into kind of corralling that power. You know, you had the Internet Explorer Netscape, uh, Monopoly Wars of the 1990s, and you had this kind of semi-deliberate crippling of the platform. You know, how, if people remember, gosh, I mean, I realize that this makes me old for some people. If you remember the pain of trying to make something work in Internet Explorer 4 or 5 as a web application, it was really hard work and that was not accidental. Yeah, and then they kind of fixed it in Internet Explorer 6 and then the web kind of suffered from a like a couple of years of stagnation. It was years of stagnation. I think that the couple of years of stagnation is, uh, that was actually arguably one of the periods of greatest innovation where it just became obvious how tight the constraints and limits that had been put on it were. Because what actually happened is this wonderful, it's almost a Greek tragedy. You get Microsoft trying desperately to hold back this tide of web, web innovation so it doesn't become the platform of the future. And then this, you know, around the turn of the millennium, and this is like famously product groups in Microsoft, not very well connected, the Outlook web access team, they go, well, wouldn't it be great if you could have like Outlook, an email client in a web browser? And they kind of put enough pressure on to make the Internet Explorer team implement this weird, janky interface for doing like real-time calls to the server called XML RPC request. And then that gets released in like, what, 2002, 2003? And within a year, you've got Gmail and Google Maps. Yeah, that just totally broke the damn free, right? That was when the whole Web 2.0 sort of thing kicked in, right? Yeah. Thing happened, yeah. And so the Internet Explorer 6 stagnation was a bunch of people kind of, it was a belated putting on of the brakes when the dam had already broken. But the fun thing about this is what it means is the web, the whole web platform, the whole structure of the web platform is built on the rubble of a platform war of the early 2000s. And so that's why the ground underneath your feet is so rough, I would argue, because we're still trying to build a functional application platform on top of a system that was originally documents and then evolved against really like active opposition into an application platform. And what's left is this Frankensteinian monster of so many different languages and frameworks having to work together to make something happen that you end up with this huge barrier to entry. Yeah, you do. And I feel like a lot of the web is like, well, we could probably do this better, but this is working everywhere. 
And that's more important than anything else. It's the ultimate path dependence. It's how we, you know, we got here this way and that's, so that determines the way things are. Well, so that probably means writing Python in the browser is not really going to be a thing, right? It's all JavaScript. Absolutely. Also, and this is, uh, this is one of the things we set out to tackle. We actually use an open source Python to JavaScript compiler called Sculpt. And so that's what enables us to take your Python code that you've written in this, you know, design code, dual view thing and run it right there in the browser. That project already existed and there are a couple other kind of like it, but there was a lot that of work that needed doing to it. I jumped in. I'm now one of the maintainers. I did the big change that enabled that blocking code you were talking about earlier. That was, that was a big change. But yeah, it's really quite fun because not often you get to do like deep compiler hacking and then say, actually, this is, you know, you can draw a direct line from this weird piece of object code transformation I'm doing to like, I'm improving usability for seven-year-olds. And I mean, and indeed, I should say this for developers of all strikes, right? For your data scientist who knows how to draw a graph and needs to do a web app. What I think is really interesting there is like you open that statement with, we're improving um, sort of the accessibility of the web for seven-year-olds, which I think, as you pointed out, kind of downplays the significance of it. But when you get something that kids like that can start to use, what that really means is non-programmer, you, you like crack open like a whole new aspect of the web for non-programmers. People who like, hey, I could totally program Excel and I could like set up these functions, maybe an if statement that'll make like this Excel go, but I'm not a programmer, right? All of a sudden that person can become like, like they could build a web app totally with those skills. So this is something that's quite interesting and it's a philosophical thing. A lot of people are interested in making tools for non-programmers. And actually, if you want tools for building a web app for non-programmers, there's actually quite a lot out there, and it's probably better optimized for non-programmers than Anvil is. We actually take a different approach. We say programming's not actually that hard, right? Increasingly, people teach themselves to code from websites. They get taught in school. It is something that people think it's reasonable to teach middle schoolers, and a whole bunch of people have learned themselves. And... I would argue kind of one of the big reasons we have this big mental block around, oh, programming's so hard, we have to make it accessible to non-programmers, is that when we think of programming, we think of the modern 10-layer web application stack. Whereas actually, writing code is the best way to tell a computer how to do something. And Python is one of the best ways to get from, I'm learning these concepts to, cool, I can write some code that gets some stuff done. And that should be all you need. So we're kind of not aiming at non-programmers. We're aiming at, I can do a little bit of code and that should be enough. Yeah, I guess that's what I was thinking of as well. It's like people who are like, I'll take a, a two hour or five hour course on Python and put a little effort into learning to code, but I'm not going to take a computer science four-year program, right? Like that kind of group. And you shouldn't need it, right? It's when people talk about coding as digital literacy, this is what they're talking about. You shouldn't actually need to be that kind of expert before you can at least participate in this world. So funny story, I'm actually taking this interview from borrowed offices of a customer who started with a single data scientist. And, you know, she had the stats knowledge, the marketing understanding for an ad tech product she wanted to build. As far as she was concerned, she was, you know, she was not a developer. She couldn't build the web app that this so clearly need and we needed and was, you know, talking to agencies and so on. And then she found Anvil and suddenly actually she realized she was a developer. It's just that what she could do was, you know, the Python she'd learned in the course of data science. And that's kind of moving the goalposts that actually a lot more people can and do know how to code. They just don't think of themselves as being able to build stuff, primarily because of the quality of today's tools, rather than because they actually don't know how to program. And the world's full of people like that, right? People who can write a little bit of code, as you said, like people who'd in previous decades would have graduated from Excel to Visual Basic are now like they're the people who are writing Python analysis, you're doing a little bit of Python notebooking, and we're trying to graduate them onto, you know, you can take that and you can build something real that, in this case, handles, you know, terrifying amounts of advertising money. <laughs> That's awesome. I do feel like that people are expected to start software as 
they're compared to places like, well, this is how Instagram works with Django, and this is how they use microservices, and this is how they've written it to be testable and scalable. People look at that and they go, well, I can't do that, so I can't start, right? And I feel like sometimes the most important thing is just to get started. Like, I think Microsoft Access was like one of the most used small business sort of things for basically forms over data, build something to work to make my dentistry run or make my little business run. I'm not a programmer, but I can like drag this stuff around until I can get what I need. And that's kind of gone away, right? I'm not a programmer, but I can use access to put this together. I'm not a programmer, but I can create a visual basic form to do this one thing that's application specific. I'm not a programmer, but I've now created this line of business application that runs my business. And Microsoft had taken, basically taken one look at this and realized that they had to guarantee support for applications written in Visual Basic 6 out to like the 2030s or something, because you give people this ability to like slide into building code and, you know, you give people this power and amazing things happen. Although, yeah. Something we've been working on quite a lot with Anvil is to support that whole journey because I don't want to like pretend that good architecture and testing and all these things aren't important. And so a real, the big design goal for us with Anvil is to have something that you can get started with without this huge barrier to entry but is not going to stop you achieving mastery and proper design and scaling your app and scaling your code. Right. You don't want to set a really low ceiling. Yes, Just like exactly. you don't want to let, set a really high barrier to entry. Yeah. And, and we're convinced that this is possible and we think that, you know, we are well on the way, if not already there for most people's use cases. And I think that there's a bit of a sense that... The floor is so high on the traditional tools, anything with a lower floor must have a much lower ceiling, and I just don't think that's true. I think that's awesome. So maybe now it's a good time to like start actually getting into the details of Anvil. People can check it out at anvil.works, right? You can go there. There's some actually really nice videos and some really intriguing things. But it basically starts, you say, create a new project. It happens on your web IDE. And it drops you, basically, well, why don't you walk us through it? So it's, it doesn't just drop you into a blank page necessarily, right? If you sign up at Anvil.works, it is free to sign up. You end up in this IDE, and you can choose some of our sample apps and see what we've done before. But if you just create a new app, you start with selecting a visual theme, and you create a new form, which is like a page in your site. You've then got this form. It's not fully blank. It's already got like the visual structure in there. And for this point, you have a toolbox of stuff on the right uh, that you can just drag on and visually create your page. And everything you drag on is a Python object. And if you sort of scroll down on the right, you can have you can see its properties. Like, for example, if you put some text on, there's you know, the font size of the text. There's the string that's what the text actually is. There is, you know, there's which font, there's which color, all that kind of stuff. And you may or may not realize it at this point, but you're actually just editing attributes of a Python object that is going to be created at runtime. Hey, everyone, this is Michael. Let me tell you about Datadog. They're sponsoring this episode. Performance and bottlenecks don't exist just in your application code. Modern applications are systems built upon systems, and Datadog lets you view the system as a whole. Let's say you have a Python web app running Flask. It's built upon MongoDB and hosted and scaled out on a set of Ubuntu servers running Nginx and MicroWSGI. Add Datadog, and you can view and monitor and even get alerts across all of these systems. Datadog has a great getting started tutorial that takes just a few moments, and if you complete it, they'll send you a sweet Datadog t-shirt for free. Don't hesitate. Visit talkpython.fm slash datadog and see what you've been missing. That's talkpython.fm slash datadog. Yeah, like you said, you may or may not know, but it, it has this very Visual Basic 6 designer feel, right? Like you have, you see it, you drag the stuff on there, you have a properties pane, you change the name, and then maybe if there's like a button, you have these events, right? So there's various things that might have events. Like if you double click a button, it drops you into like this code behind type thing, which is a Python. Yeah, tell us about that back there. If you double click a button, you're immediately dumped into a function that runs when that button gets clicked. And it's actually a method of a class that represents the whole page. All of this is Python, right? Absolutely, all Python. And all those things you dragged onto the page are in fact accessible as instance variables. So, you know, self.label1 or whatever in that Python code. 
So it's a very natural thing. I mean, you said Visual Basic 6 and Delphi, and no two ways about it, Anvil owes a huge debt to those rapid application tools of the 1990s because that was a really good way to work. They were hugely successful in building quick little applications rather than hiring like a big dev team, but they ran on... Windows 95, not on the internet. You'll spend most of your your time, if you're editing an Anvil app, switching between the visual design to you know, put some visual component on and the code that runs when you interact with these components. Everything there will be compiled to JavaScript and will run in the user's browser. You'll then, of course, if you're writing a most non-trivial web apps, are going to require a server component. So you can add a server module to your app. And that's a Python module that runs on our servers, original naming, right? And you can put whatever you like into that module. It's just a Python module. But any functions that you annotate with at anvil.server.callables, just a decorator, those functions you can then call from your client code. Right, much like writing like a pyramid or Flask web method. You just put a decorator on it and then it's accessible. But somehow there's a kind of a... A really nice link both through the autocomplete IntelliSense side of things as well as the calling side with the Python that is the, the code behind for your page that actually runs in the browser and the Python that you write that actually lives in the server, right? Not knocking Flask because Flask is excellent for uh, building REST APIs, but having to squeeze all of your app state through this choke point of it must be representable as a REST API and as JSON is one of those things that makes the web unnecessarily difficult, and we explicitly avoid that. So when you mark a function as callable in a server module in Anvil, and then you call it from your client code, as well as being auto-completed right through, and you know if you get an exception, there'll be a stack trace that shows the call going from the server to the client exactly where it blew up, which is very hard to do over something like REST. You can also pass in or return much richer data structures. I mean, you can pass and return anything that could be JSON, so uh, you know, lists, dictionaries, strings, numbers, none, etc. But you can also do things like returning a row from a database. Actually, I'll just explain what that is. So a lot of apps will require some app-specific storage. And because it's just Python, if you already have a database, you can just you know import PyMySQL, import PsychoPG, connect to a database and go on. You know, many people do. But a lot of the time, you'll require something apps, some app-specific storage. And Anvil has a built-in database we call the data tables for that. That's based on Postgres, right? Yes, so it's backed by Postgres. And the tables themselves have a directly Pythonic API. So you don't actually write SQL to inter- interact with them. You can if you've got a dedicated instance and you have your own database and we don't mind you <laughs> writing Towers of Hanoi in SQL. But... This means that the data table itself is a Python object. So if I create a data table to store all the visitors to my form, I entitle it visitors. I've then got app tables.visitors accessible as an identifier in my code, just like those components are accessible as Python objects in my code. And I could return that. I could search for a set of rows and those rows will become live objects. You can access them like dictionaries to, you know, get the column values out, or you can update them by going, you know, row, bracket quote, name, bracket is Meredith. Okay, so I think there's some really interesting stuff happening here in that you have Python that looks like it's just regular Python, but actually runs and sculpt in the browser. And you got Python that runs on the server. Where can I access this database? Because it could be like, do I have to do it only on the server? Or can I put it in my like button click? Not necessarily should, but that I could I? Absolutely. So the thing I was leading up to, we were talking about the client server calls. The reason that we benefit from not squeezing everything through this choke point of a REST API is you can return a row from a database as a Python object from this server code, and it will you know, pop out of your the call and, as a return value in the client code. And this means you can absolutely just directly access this in client code. I mean, in fact, for any data table, you can set its permissions. You can say, actually, this table should be completely readable from client code. And then in your form code, in the stuff that gets compiled to JavaScript, you can go iterate through all the rows of a table. If it's readable from the client, why shouldn't you be able to? Yeah, that's cool. And you also get like a visual designer type thing for the databases and the relationships and stuff, yeah? So yeah, if you're, you can say, oh, I, there's, here's a bunch of components. I'm repeating it for every element in a list. And 
again, like this is something we gain from everything being Python because that list is just a list of Python objects and you can give it a hint or the autocompleter can work out what type the Python objects were. And if, for example, it knows that you've given it a list of rows from such and such a database, then when, you, when you're in the visual designer and you pull up the data bindings and you say, I want the text on this label to be the name column from this row in the database, it can autocomplete that for you because it's all using the same object model, it's all using the same language, and it knows, for example, what options are available for column lookup on that row. And that, I think, is a really powerful thing for making this stuff a lot faster. I think also that that's a super important component for people who are getting started. They they look at code and they're like, I don't know what to type, right? But if you type dot and like, here's a list, like, oh, it says text. Okay, cool. That must mean like that's the value that's in the input box. Or I type dot customer.name. Oh, that's the name of the customer, right? That's super helpful. So there's a talk that I, a lightning talk I just gave at PyCon UK, so last Sunday, that will be going up on our website soon, possibly by the time this uh, podcast gets published, where I talk about the autocompleter and how we build it. But actually, I spend about half the talk talking about how no really autocomplete is just terribly important. And seriously, listeners out there, if you spend all your days in Vim or Emacs and you don't use an autocompleter, I would just recommend just try for a week, install the Jedi plugin for Vim or Emacs, and experience what using autocomplete is like for your code creation. Because you're faster, you know what you're doing, you can eliminate whole classes of bugs without ever even hitting the run button. And you get this, you know, you get to stay in flow rather than going out to check the document documentation every five seconds. Yeah, I use PyCharm a lot, and that's one of the main things that I find it super helpful for. You do the editor question at the end, but yes, absolutely. <laughs> and I have to say, we spent a while thinking that we could do without auto-completion and create a application development environment that was fun to use. And we, we were just wrong. You need it. You need that reassurance. Yeah. What I think is really interesting is you actually span like client server with autocomplete and stuff as well. Yeah. Well, no, this is honestly the biggest thing. It's when one of the reasons that a lot of people, again, when back in the 1990s, your standard tools all had autocomplete, why people have kind of lost it now is because the tools don't know about, oh, well, what's on the other end of this rest call I'm making? What options will be available on the thing that comes back? And actually, because it's all in the same system, it's all in the same language, the autocomputer goes, well, you know, I parsed the return statement that will give me this value five seconds ago. I know exactly what it's returning, and I'm going to autocomplete the columns available on this database row. That's actually really, really nice. And we preserve that... And again, because we have this rich interface that's not squeezed over REST connection, we can do things like we have a built-in capability security model, which is a fancy word for a thing that you most of the time just don't need to think about, which is if you've got one of these rich objects and you return it from a server function, that was you giving the client access to that object. So if there's a data table that the server can access and the client can't, but there's some server function that says, well, okay, I will give you the rows that belong to your user... As it's returned those, you've now got read access to those rows that belong to your user. And so you can use them directly in client code. That's cool. How much ability do you have to structure things other than this like page code behind thing in Python? Like, can I create like a classes and helper modules and stuff in Python that actually run in Sculpt? So we've got uh, server-side modules that run purely on the server, and that's code that you know, the client never sees and is trustworthy. And then we've also got like utility modules, which can be imported from client and server. And again, they're just Python modules you can import. So you know, common code that'll be between lots of your pages. We've also got a system where you can take your whole app and kind of and package that up as well as a Python package that other apps can depend on. So you could say, you know, oh, I've built a form for, I don't know, for displaying a progress bar. This is something that actually one of our users did on the forum recently. I built a progress bar form. And I'm going to export this as a package that somebody else can import. So you can also structure your code in that kind of reusable libraries way. Right, that's a really cool bit. Like, I can't remember the last time in the web that I had like a sort of a drag and drop reusable visual component that had both a visual aspect and a functional aspect. But you guys have that, right? You can create these like sub element controls and, and like drop them. I mean, it's been probably 
10 years since I've worked in a web framework that had that? Yes, I, this is the thing, right? People say, oh, it's been 10 years. What happened to progress? <laughs> Why did we go backwards in those 10 years? Yes, absolutely. So when you import one of these, if you, when you import a dependency that's got uh, some of this stuff in, as well as being able to like import the utility modules, you know, just like you'd import Python modules and of course they autocomplete and blah, blah, blah. You've also got this server side code you can bring in so you can make, you've brought in the client side code, you've brought in the server side behavior and you've brought in the visual design all at once. So you can create these reusable components that will abstract away a lot of the fuss people are. Uh, people currently have to re-implement 10 times. There could be actually almost a marketplace for people to create really powerful little controls. Tell me about it. That's definitely on our radar. I don't have anything to talk about yet, but yes, you would not be the first person to ask for that. Yeah, I mean, definitely in like the Windows forums, VB space, there were companies that like just, they built these components that you could buy. Like I need a really cool graphing component or I need like a... I don't know, like a login component or something, and you just drop them in there. Yeah, and I feel like we've already kind of proved out that model with the components and services we already provide within Anvil. So as well as like forms and modules and server modules, in an Anvil app, you just hit a plus button next to the word services, and you get the option of adding a bunch of pre-built interfaces to various external services. So, I mean, the data tables is one I've already talked about. But you could, for example, you know, add the Google API service. And that's just a bunch of packaged up functions for dealing with you know, files in Google Drive, uh, accessing Google Sheets documents, uh, authenticating people with their uh, Google accounts. So maybe some company that runs on Excel could take all of their Excel documents, drop them into Google Docs, and then you could access them and convert them, access them as Google Sheets and use them as... Uh, companies that do that have done that with Anvil. Okay. Yeah, for exactly that reason. And that's enabled by the fact that there is this sort of drop-in, you know, client and server and UI service that provides the things you will need if you want to interact with the Google API. And similarly, you know, we have something equivalent for Facebook and a couple of other things. Yeah, you guys have Stripe, like a super simple integration with Stripe. Oh, yes, absolutely. If you say you want to get money... Again, just a Stripe integration just off the shelf. Yeah, that's awesome. You have email, you have user management. Those are both pretty impressive. Yes. Well, the user management was what I really wanted to talk about. It's the perfect example. The user management service is implemented. I don't think there's any... No, there is no JavaScript in the entire thing. It's all implemented using the standard API. So user service is a perfect example of something that you could have written yourself. In fact, people... Of course, people did. People did before we had it implemented. But... It's just a data table with, you know, a column for email, a column for your bcrypt hash password. Oh, you guys are using bcrypt? That's awesome. You know, a server function that go, that you pass in a username and password and it go, looks up the user and says, does it match? And if so, it stores something into the session. And, you know, it can use the Google API service to say, oh, who's, you know, log this user in with Google, who's logged in. Right. You got the OAuth 2 stuff. It's all something you could build, but you don't want to have to every time you want to build a web application. I'm working on a project right now and I spent like literally a full day just working on user management and I'm like, yep, this is just like the stuff I wrote six months ago and it's also <laughs> going to be probably what I write six months from now. So yeah, I feel like I'm always reinventing user management. So that's cool that that's kind of a, a plug and play thing. We've tried to pick off some like low hanging fruit the things that people reinvent a lot and user management was, I mean, pretty much top of that list. You know, how many times have you re written an email a email validation link processor thing. Too many. I want my life back. Exactly. But really, that's just the low-hanging fruit because there's tons of stuff out there that people implement every day and shouldn't have to. They should, they should be able to create reusable libraries. And we're really excited to have that kind of ease of use come to other domains in Anvil. So if you're Esri and you're like a company that creates the company that creates ArcGIS, you wanted people to access your stuff. Maybe you could just drop in like, here's how you just plug into our web service and just get to your like cloud GIS stuff, right? Or things like this. Yeah, that's beautiful. This portion of TalkPython Me was brought to you by GoCD. GoCD is an on-premise, open-source, continuous delivery tool to help you get better visibility into and control of your team's deployments. With GoCD's comprehensive pipeline modeling, you can model complex workflows for multiple teams with ease. 
And GoCD's value stream map lets you track changes from commit to deploy at a glance. Say goodbye to deployment panic and hello to consistent, predictable deliveries. We all know that continuous integration is super important to the code quality of your applications. Choose the open source local CI server, GoCD. Learn more at talkpython.fm slash GoCD. That's talkpython.fm slash G-O-C-D. And I mean, Anvil already, again, all of this stuff is stuff you could do yourself. We have a bunch of really cool stuff for interacting with web services. I mean, if you're a client of a web service, you probably just want the requests library and then you're off. But making that easy and simple and, you know, tab completing their whole API is a kind of thing that, yeah, companies will want. And it's, yeah, it's something we've talked to with companies before and we're really excited about bringing that kind of, oh, okay, I want to do telephony. Fine. Yeah, that's... One import and autocomplete? Exactly. Exactly. Drop in the Twilio module or whatever, whoever it is, right? So this is all super interesting, and these these component type things are, are super cool. But one, I guess the thing that probably was most impressive to me that showed like, okay, you have this thing that runs in your environment and is hosted. And I want to talk about like what that means. Before we talk about that, though, let's talk about Uplink, your final service. Oh, yeah. Well, so Uplink isn't really service. The uplink is yet another example of a pattern that we do right the way throughout Anvil. Everything's built on abstractions, right? You know, you can solve every problem in computer science with another layer of abstraction, uh, except the problem with too many layers. Right. If it doesn't work, <laughs> and, you add one more, yeah. Yeah, and Anvil <laughs> is an abstraction over the web. And, of course, every abstraction has its limits. Every abstraction leaks, to quote that famous essay. And the question is, how does your abstraction handle it when you hit the edge? I mean, JavaScript frameworks basically handle it by letting it all hang out. That you know you can't use these JavaScript frameworks without understanding quite a lot about how they work underneath anyway. So you can just you know pull away bits of the foundation and uh, edit it yourself if you need to. Some abstractions, like if you're running, if you're writing a Windows desktop application and you need it to run on the web, you're kind of stuck. You know, you're going to have to do some serious rewriting or interfacing. But the pattern I most like is kind of, well, I should say, there's. Also, this kind of ejection pattern. There's a tool called Create React App, if you're familiar with it. I forgive you if you're not. But the idea is it simplifies a bunch of uh, the creation of uh, you know, the front-end build process. So I want to take my source code and compile it to another form of JavaScript, compile it to another form of JavaScript, minify it, and deliver it as one asset. And it takes a lot of that kind of pain away from you. But of course, it's going to be limited, and it's going to be an abstraction that won't let you do absolutely everything your platform requires. And if you hit this limit, there's a handle you can pull, like eject. And then it will say, well, you're done here. I will dump out all like the high complexity stuff for you and say, well, right, you can edit it. You know, you can edit Webpack configuration now. Oh, goody. And like if Anvil, if Anvil had something similar, it would be like, oh, this thing is now a horrendously complicated JavaScript app using this uh, Python JavaScript compiler that you have no familiarity with. Have fun. And that's actually slightly, I mean, it's more user-friendly than like making the user go down with a ship, but it's still quite high complexity. And what we try to do is instead of an ejector seat, we've got escape hatches. So you want to do some specific visual design on your web page. Well, that's fine. If you want to, you can drop down and edit the HTML and CSS that makes up the template into which these Anvil components are dropped. And you can create your own house style and, you know, bring in assets from a professional designer and use that. If you have some, you know, you want to build something like WebRTC was a request I got recently. You know, we don't support that yet. We will one day. We don't yet. I want to use this advanced feature of the browser platform. Well, that's okay. I can write some JavaScript, some JavaScript, and then I can call it from Python. And it can call into my Python. And then I can package all of that up as one of these custom components, make a library so other people can just say, import my code, and now you have WebRTC support. It's all auto-completed. It's all nice. It's all in Python. You don't have to worry about it. And the server-side version of this is the uplink. So the uplink, it's a library you can pip install from anywhere in the world. And when you enable it for your app, you get an authentication key. And you do anvil.server.connect, and you give it this authentication key. And now your Python code 
wherever it's running in the world is connected to your Anvil app. It makes a secure WebSocket connection in. It's really quite impressive. I think maybe to give us the example that you have on your website with the Raspberry Pi, because I think that really highlights like how flexible this is. So if you've got a Python code, if you've got Python code running somewhere in the world and you Anvil server connect in, all those things you can do on the server module, you can do from your Python code wherever it is. And there's an example tutorial video on our site of me doing this with a Raspberry Pi. So I take a Raspberry Pi, I write like the two lines of code. If you've ever used a Raspberry Pi, you can get something called a sense hat for it, which is an LED array. And it's like really super simple to display some text scrolling across that LED array. It's, it's very nice. And I write a function that takes a piece of text, displays it on that. Because I've got the uplink, all I do is I mark that at anvil.server.callable just like I would in the server module. And all of a sudden, I can call it from my web app. Just to be clear, this is a function running on the Raspberry Pi is being called by your Anvil app. Absolutely. There's a function running on the Raspberry Pi. <laughs> it's crazy. Called from a web browser. Why shouldn't you be able to do that, right? That's yeah, beautiful. It's one call. We don't even use a server module. We call it straight from the straight from the browser. Yeah, that's really incredible. And it, it even goes straight through firewalls and stuff. You don't even have to open a port because it's an outbound connection to establish that socket, right? And so you can drive code. I mean, obviously, the Raspberry Pi is a slightly educational, possibly slightly facetious example. But, you know, we've got people driving big, like, machine learning jobs that need to run on some dedicated somewhere server somewhere with, like, 20 GPUs in. And, like, you know, if they tried to do that inside our server modules, they'd hit their CPU quota pretty quickly, and that would be the end of that. But because there's a route to plug your code into Anvil wherever it is, they just import the uplink module, you know, mark some control functions callable, and they can drive this big GPU rig from our hosted web stuff just as easily as you could drive this Raspberry Pi on your desk to display something, just as easily as you could be driving a server function. This is a really cool feature. I really like it. So maybe this is a good time to talk about like what it means to publish your code, where is it hosted, things like that. So tell me about where I can put this code. When I hit publish on your site, what does that mean? It's hosted on our infrastructure. We were talking earlier about this hugely deep web stack you need to understand all of. And you need to understand all of before you can do like even Hello World on the web. And we didn't talk about the layers lower on the stack, right? Also, if I want to deploy a Hello World on the web, I'm going to need to understand like, you know, AWS spin up a server. I'm going to have to understand how to administer a Linux computer usually. I'm going to have to publish that. I'm going to have to keep it up to date with security updates because I don't want to be the next Equifax being popped by a you know months old known vulnerability. And that too is a barrier to entry. And tools like Heroku can help. But what Anvil does is it we do the whole package. So you write your code in Anvil and it's hosted on our platform as well. So you hit the publish button from the Anvil editor, even if you, you know, just signed up 30 seconds ago, you hit the publish button and you've got a URL that is your app on the web already. Uh, by default, obviously, it's a private URL. It's like one of those Google Apps sharing links. So, you know, Google Docs, if I send you this link, you can open it. But if you don't have it, you can't get it. And this is really powerful because it means that your, your sort of, your turnaround time is really low. You can get something onto the web very quickly and you're not worrying about all that ongoing maintenance burden of, ooh, have I updated the server this week? Yeah, I think that's really cool. And where's your infrastructure actually running? Is it AWS or somewhere else? Uh, we run in AWS. Okay. But I mean, we also run on-site stuff. Go on. Sure. And you guys have an option to let it, to basically have an on-prem version, right? Absolutely, yeah. And of course, that is just, you know, a few Docker containers, one Docker compose command, and you've got a local version of Anvil running on your own machine. Yeah, that's cool. So our code runs in Docker on some Linux machine in AWS, basically when we run it, the server code? Absolutely, yes. Okay. It's a little bit more tightly locked down than that, but yes. Yeah, sure. And do I get to pick the data center? Not at the moment. You will want one of, there's a business dedicated hosting plan that says, essentially, we will put the VM wherever you like and you can have it to yourselves. Okay, yeah, that's pretty cool. So I, I think what you guys have built really is quite interesting and definitely for proof of concept apps, for people who are like don't really consider themselves web developers, but they, they feel like they can learn enough to like solve their problem. Like This is awesome. Yeah, I think it's not just for those people. I mean, it is for those people. It's not just for those people. So something that we do observe quite a bit, for example, is people going, oh, well, I'll just use this to throw together like a visual mock-up. Oh, wait, well, I can add a little bit of behavior to it. Oh, well, I can add a bit more behavior to it. Oh, okay, well, I've got this first version of my app. I might as well launch it as a prototype, right? Oh, well, it's in production, it's scaling. Okay, then. 
Yeah, exactly. So the, the point is that we should be able to grow with you from that proof of concept prototype up to a deployed application. And we have you know, many people who've done that with us. It sounds definitely doable looking at what you guys have built there. So one thing I do want to sort of a touch on with you is what about the escape hatches? Like, so if I want to use a, a different editor that's external, if I want to do like unit testing, if I, if I decide I actually want to take that code and put it somewhere else, is there a way to like move out? I've talked to you before about like the, the server hosting environment and some of the really quite critical usability stuff we can do because we're not squeezing everything through this REST API checkpoint. A corollary of that is it kind of needs to be hosted on our platform to work because standardized platforms that let you just return a database row from the server to the client and have that give you implicit permissions are kind of thin on the ground. So if you want to run an Anvil app on-premises on your own hardware, you are going to need an on-premises license. If you do want to migrate out, obviously, you know, we'd be sad to see you go. But because of these escape hatches I talked about earlier, it's actually a fairly straightforward process, right? You could change your server modules into REST endpoints. So, I mean, even if you're not moving out, right, you have, for example, a native iOS app that wants to talk to the same backend as the web app you've already created. Well, that's fine, because although by default we don't go through this REST API layer, you can decorate functions in your server modules to make them REST endpoints and say, this is very Flask-like oh, well, this function's available at this URL. And that lets you expand outside the Anvil-hosted web client. And equally, you can use different backends from an Anvil-hosted client. So, yeah, we don't think that you're kind of stuck there, but there are tools of our platform that you kind of need the whole thing to use. Yeah, that makes sense. I do understand, like, you guys are doing a lot of magic to wire this stuff together. And without without the... The sort of orchestration behind the scenes, then it can, I can see how that's not so easy to do. I have a love-hate relationship with the word magic. I mean, obviously magic is a word that people use when they see, you know, something like Amber working, like, oh my goodness, that's magic. And it's the word I used earlier to describe my first experiences with something like Cubasic, oh my goodness, this is magic. But there's good magic and bad magic, right? There is bad magic as in this is an Angular app, and I'm not really sure what it does underneath to make this lever I pull over here connect to that thing over there that just wiggled. And then there's kind of good magic, which is comprehensible. You could see exactly how it worked. It just saved you some work. Like, for example, the client server calls an Anvil. There are an example of what I would argue good magic. You can see, you know, it's just a function call. You can see how it worked. You see how you could implement it with REST endpoints if you wanted to. But you're kind of glad you don't have to. I mostly meant that in the positive sense, the the magic you guys are doing. But just that it's hard to replicate outside the, the environment, right? So uh, you have um, a business model for this that is more or less like a freemium. Like there's a, a basic version, but if you want your own domain, then you've got to pay some amount. It seems pretty reasonable to me. But one of the things that came up is like, what if I'm working on an open source project and I'd like to have like some kind of open web app hosted with you guys that a bunch of people can come and contribute to like what would that look like or is that possible it totally would i mean even if if you have an open source web app you you know somebody's usually paying for hosting somewhere but the good news about the good thing about anvil is that all of your apps are in fact git repositories so it is totally a thing you can do to pull your apps git repository out of anvil you could stick it on github you could collaborate if you, you asked earlier about, oh, I want to use my own editor. Oh, I'm an Emacs fiend. I absolutely must edit this module in Emacs. That's fine. Get check out. Get pulled. Have fun. Yeah, get pushed when you're done. But also that means that you're open to collaboration tools like GitHub. Uh, so you could totally run an open source app that's based on Anvil. You could have multiple instances that people pay to host or host on a free version. Yeah, that sounds good. The, the Git integration is pretty nice. And I guess you can create multiple upstreams in Git and make one of those be your GitHub repo, right? That's something that we we do all the time. I mean, you can even do like a continuous integration, continuous deployment, because everything you can do in the Anvil editor is reflected in this Git repository, obviously. So you could do things like, oh, well, this is my staging deployment, and it's got access to some staging data. And then I pull that Git commit, and I push it up to somewhere else. And that's my deployed app. Indeed, we actually have a miniature version of this within Anvil itself. So you can choose a version of your app. If you go into view history, you can see like the full Git history of your app. 
and uh, you can select a version that's the published version. And so if somebody come, comes to your shared URL externally, that's what they get. And so you can carry on hacking and you've got this dev versus production thing already kind of built in. But the thing about Git is that, of course, you can extend that. I think that's really nice. And so basically you have this UI that says, here's your Git history. And that means like you went and press save, like save a state here. But you can actually mark like this one right here right now is production and continue working on it and then push production on down the line once you have it sort of tested also kind of in production. And I think that's pretty powerful. Yeah. And actually, if you use that Git interface, you'll discover that's just a branch in Git. And this is kind of what I mean about good magic versus bad magic. That's kind of magical, but how we do it is very much open and you can play with it too if you want to do something more advanced. But yeah, the normal user experience is like one click. Okay, that's production now. Done. All right. So we don't have much time left. This is so much cool stuff to talk about. I guess one last question is like, you have your data tables as a service there. How do I back up my data? So if you're using the data tables within Anvil, the first thing to say is we do take regular and you know properly encrypted and stored backups of those. So uh, you should not have to worry about the data loss. But if you want a copy on your own system, then... There's a ton of ways to get it out. I mean, every data table in the editor, there's like a download a CSV button, which is a very straightforward way of getting this stuff out. But earlier we talked about the uplink. And of course, from the uplink, you can do anything you could do in those server modules. It's not just a matter of saying, oh, well, here's a function that, you know, that displays some text on my Raspberry Pi and it's callable from the web. That script can also, you know, reach in and say, oh, I would like to iterate over all the rows in this table. And that's totally legit from an uplink. Sync that with some local DB, something like that. Yes. So, you know, if you had your own representation of data you wanted to synchronize with or import, export, that is really straightforward to do. And again, you know, if if what you actually want is something in Amazon Redshift, if that's where you want to sync your data to and you, that's where, where you want all your data to live, you could just access it there from Anvil as well, because we've got all those Python modules ready for you to use. There's nothing forcing you to use the data table service. It's just something that makes your life more convenient in a lot of cases. Right. Knowing the Docker containers are running AWS, you can basically crack out and get to most of the other AWS stuff, right? That would be accessible. That would be possible even if we weren't running in AWS, right? Right. Lower latency inside AWS, yeah. It does run quite well. Nice. All right. Well, I think, you know, there's a bunch of other stuff we could dig into. I think we should probably leave it here just for time's sake. So let me ask you the two questions. We talked a lot about editors, actually. So let's start with your favorite editor. Favorite because it's my baby and also I spend a lot of time in it is, of course, the Anvil editor. It's got a full autocomplete. It can do full stack development and it's plugged into full version control on the back end. So I spend a lot of my time obviously working in that. For building the Anvil backend itself, I actually use IntelliJ and I really love the JetBrains tools. IntelliJ PyCharm are fantastic. The, again, the autocompletion is top notch. Cool. All right. That sounds awesome. Yeah. The editor you built is really, really nice. I definitely like it. Yeah. Check out our PyCon UK lightning talk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you send me the link. I'll put it in the show notes. And notable PyPI package? The selfish answer here is the Anvil uplink because it is on PyPy and it is it is remarkably cool in its ability to plug your own code into the cloud. Uh, if I weren't counting that, then it's got to be Pandas. The things you can do in like three lines of code that I recall using janky libraries to pull that data out of Excel files and process it or worse, using R... Yeah, incredible. So yeah, Pandas wins. Cool, yeah, that's definitely definitely a big one. All right, final call to action. People want to check out Anvil. What, what do they do? Oh, they go to anvil.works and they sign up for a free account. We've got tons of walkthrough videos and tutorials. Uh, there's a user forum that's really quite active and friendly and you can sign up for an account for free and start building. Uh, and I would really encourage you to do so and I would look forward to seeing you there. Awesome. Well, congrats on building this. It's definitely... Uh pushing Python in a direction that I haven't really seen it push successfully in, in quite a while. So it, it's awesome. Nice work. Thank you very much. It's been great talking to you. This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Today's guest was Meredith Loof, and this episode has been brought to you by Datadog and ThoughtWorks. Datadog gives you visibility into the whole system running your code. Visit talkpython.fm slash datadog and see what you've been missing. They'll even throw in a free t-shirt for doing the tutorial. GoCD is the on-premise, open-source, continuous delivery server. Want to improve your deployment workflow but keep your code and builds in-house? Check out GoCD at talkpython.fm slash gocd and take control over your process.
Are you or a colleague trying to learn Python? Have you tried books and videos that just left you bored by covering topics point by point? Well, check out my online course, Python Jumpstart by Building 10 Apps at talkpython.fm slash course to experience a more engaging way to learn Python. And if you're looking for something a little more advanced, try my Write Pythonic Code course at talkpython.fm slash pythonic. Be sure to subscribe to the show. Open your favorite podcatcher and search for Python. We should be right at the top. You can also find the iTunes feed at slash iTunes, Google Play feed at slash play, and direct RSS feed at slash RSS on talkpython.fm. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Now get out there and write some Python code.